Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature paneling from the Singularity Summit of Australia, Lachlan Watmore speaks about amniotic eggs, and I spoke to Robert Boy about vaccinations and dengue fever. First up, let's hear what Lachlan Watmore has to say. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for eggs. Uncle Lachlan would like to tell you more about that particular type of egg that can only be called a masterpiece of evolution. It's also a tasty addition to breakfast. I've got a new mate. He's about 30 days old, seriously cute, appears to have inherited his father's nose, and should have topped six kilos by now. He's my brand new nephew, Deckard. Looking at this small bundle of perfection in his hospital-issued crib, I was struck for the five millionth and definitely not the last time by the extraordinary ability of life to grow. The hairs on his head, the tiny nails on his fingertips, the lovely warmth from his little body as I held him, thanks to a good collection of heat-producing brown adipose tissue, also known as baby fat. And I looked and I saw that it was good. And it all started with an egg. Deckard, like me, is a mammal. Specifically, he's a terrestrial mammal, which means he lives on land, and his mother had a special provision for him to protect the growing egg from desiccation, or drying out. Being a placental mammal, Mama made use of an internal system evolved by mammals to protect the egg inside her very body. Other creatures protect eggs from desiccation by coating them in a shell, which can be hard or soft, but is always waterproof. Most terrestrial vertebrates thus protect their developing young with one glaring exception, amphibians. Frogs, toads, salamanders, newts, etc. have eggs that are more like those of fish and which must be laid in pools of water that last long enough for their larvae to mature into adults who can cope with dry land. So looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, fish and amphibians produce larvae which must metamorphose into adults, in the case of amphibians, before taking to the land. But the rest of us vertebrates have evolved an amazing thing which bypasses the aquatic larval phase. It not just copes with desiccation, but also nourishes and oxygenates the embryo and carries away wastes. This amazing thing is called the amniotic egg. Reptiles invented it, birds made it tasty, and mammals have taken it to where no egg has gone before. Wheels are made for rolling, mules are made to pack. I've never seen a sight that didn't look better looking back. I was born under a wandering star. Mud can make you prisoner and the In yet another disaster for creationism, a possible candidate for the first amniotic creature has been discovered. About 340 million years ago, 
amphibians were making serious inroads into terrestrial life, but had to keep returning to the water to reproduce. A small animal called Cassinaria kitty, which looked vaguely like a modern lizard, is possibly the first of the amniotes. Being able to lay or gestate an egg on land obviously gives an animal an advantage because this increases your geographical range, or in other words, your species can now really venture inland and reproduce far from the sea. Now, it's true that non-amniotic vertebrates have ventured far inland. The Australian desert frog comes to mind. But it's been reptiles, birds and mammals that have truly conquered the land in the name of the subphylum vertebrata because the ability to lay eggs or gestate young in dry places enables animal populations to migrate. The amniotic egg secret comes down to a series of specialist membranes. These are the amnion, the allantois, the chorion and the yolk sac. Think of a chook's egg. The chorion is the thin membrane that lines the inside of the shell. It's the white inner skin that holds bits of shell together when you crack a boiled egg. The amnion is the membrane housing the embryo. The allantois is a thin membranous bag inside the yellow ball of yolk. It doesn't actually contain yolk, but instead collects wastes as the embryo grows. The yolk sac does contain yolk, that's why it's called the yolk sac, which is a specially prepared reservoir of nutrients, so that the only thing the embryo needs from outside the egg are warmth and oxygen. This is obtained by the chorion via the semi-permeable shell. Air goes into the egg through the pores in the shell and the oxygen diffuses across the chorion to aerate the growing chick. As the chick grows, the yolk sac gets smaller as its contents get consumed, the allantois gets bigger as it fills up with wastes, and the chorion keeps that O2 coming. Now, viviparity, or giving birth to live young by holding and gestating an egg inside the female body, holds several advantages. Mostly, it relieves the mother from the exhausting process of having to provide all an embryo's yolk at one time. Laying an egg means that the egg has to be a fully self-contained unit, capable of coming to term with only temperature control and oxygen supply being the responsibility of mum or dad. Viviparity also relieves one or both parents from having to guard a nest of these expensive little units, as many a mummy dinosaur would have attested. So the amniotic egg underwent modification to enable the first mammals to thus bring their young to term. The chorion, allantois and yolk sac combined to form the umbilical cord and the placenta, enabling ongoing nutrition, oxygenation and waste extraction. Finally, the amnion would evolve larger and more complex. With the evolution of eutherian mammals who would bring their young to full term in the uterus, it would become the amniotic sac, the warm bag of fluid housing the baby. Remember the baby? It's the bit you get to keep. So with a glass of milk raised to the amniotic egg and its marvellous way of helping a young vertebrate ease into terrestrial life, I'd like to welcome William Deckard Mears Watmore to this dry, harsh, wet, sloppy and utterly wonderful world. Guess what, buddy? They taste great with bacon. Oh, and uh, thanks, Cass.
That was Lachlan Watmore with The Evolution of the Amniotic Egg. Lachlan was ably assisted by Spinal Tap, the late, great Lee Marvin, Scout and Lucy Watmore, and, in his first public appearance, Deckard Mears Watmore, who played the part of the baby, pterodactyl. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion? You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com broadcast in Sydney on 2SER, and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and available all over the world on our podcast at www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Well, of course, even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Next up, Ian Wolfe attended the Singularity Summit. The Singularity Summit Australia was held in Melbourne to discuss the future of accelerating technological change. Robotics and machine consciousness researcher James Newton Thomas, physicist and medical pioneer Gregory Benford, and author of The Artelect War, Hugo de Garis, join a panel to discuss surprising technologies of the near future. Around the by nanomachines everywhere we go. Cells, E. coli, everywhere you go, viruses, bacteria, are effectively a form of nanomachine. And they haven't yet managed to take over the world well. In some ways they have, they're all amazing. But we don't have the scenario that Bob Joy has talked about. However, let me just read this article, which was uh, from New Scientist. Who artificial DNA letters that are accurately and efficient replicated by a natural enzyme have been created by US researchers. Adding the two artificial building blocks to the four that naturally complies DNA could allow wildly different types of genetic engineering. So what we're saying is that we have now opened Pandora's box to new proteins. By going from the four base pairs that we currently run, we now have the possibility of using six with all the unknown territory or the new pathways up 
mountain probable, to use Dawkins' terminology, that that entailed. So I think I'll pass that across to you. That's certainly going to be a, a, a very soon in your face development, and it's going to lead to designer organisms of scales that might be surprised. Uh, I mean, you know, I've always thought that uh, one of the things that people do, or people would do first with genetic control of traits is uh, have play games with their pets. Really, in England, where the pets seem to be more important than anything else. I, uh, I believe that, in fact, since we have a history of, of fooling around with our pets and breeding them for all kinds of traits that are, uh, for the most part, not really good, good survival traits, that people will produce pets of all various kinds. In fact, uh, there's a company that's now run for almost a decade in Arizona that will clone and recreate your pet when your pet dies. They're very quiet. I've got a name. Actually, their main service job is to clone racehorses, extremely good black Angus cattle, and things like that. And they've very quiet in doing this. It's perfectly legal. Uh, but this ability to implant traits that are arrived at not by artificial selection, but by artificial genomic engineering means, they're going to be able to implant traits that you don't arrive at by progression through a number of generations, but you just directly insert into an organism. Uh, it's not going to be something dramatic. You're not going to see talking dogs, by the way, for example, or maybe even uh, Cats with blue fur, although that might be just a couple of genetic size. But I think people will start to design the natural world to their liking. That, that's the obvious first implication of just that idea, but there are others as well. For example, uh, uh, my wife and I wrote a book published uh, two and a half years ago called Beyond Human, which deals with two things, just two. One is human enhancement by all kinds of technologies uh, to enhance hearing or Burners to be believed, cognition, uh, that there are smart drugs, so to speak, around. You can, some you can buy on the internet that will expand the capillaries in your brain or increase the oxygen carrier load and apparently make you smarter. There are some tests that would show that, in fact, people are smarter when they take these drugs. By the way, people are also smarter if you put some ozone in here because. The oxygen process of the uh, Those kinds of things will, will appear very soon. Uh, but also, we wrote about robotics because robots are about to become the big new in your face technology on a scale of 10 to 20 years. We already have a number of them in the US, but nobody remarks on One of the traits of robots is there are two stages, no, three stages. One, oh, that'll never happen. Two, uh, yeah, let's try it out. Three, which occurs typically like two months later. Oh yeah, it's been around here forever. <laughs> I see robots doing all kinds of small jobs. In some hospitals, robots deliver X-rays floor to floor. They they know how to go from Doctor X over get the elevator right up to the fifth floor, get off the elevator, go down to the lab at, at door Y, and insert it in a slot. That happens right now. Nobody look thinks a second thing about it. But there will be a lot more like that. I live in China. It's 1.3 billion people, and it's 
10% average economic growth rate. And in some of the southeastern cities, it's about 15%. And in Shenzhen, the richest city in China, it's like 30%. So, uh, one of the things that in China, my prior job, I just recently retired, but before that, I was director of the Chinese Artificial Brain Project, Artificial Brain Lab. I the name Baby Gosal has taken over my, my job there. One of the things we're trying to do is to persuade the Chinese government to invest heavily into the home robot industry. It kind of test export because China largely has just been playing catch up with the West until about now. But because they're Chinese and huge population and lots of money and they're a dictatorial power, I don't know if you've heard, but just a few years ago, the government has decided to put 10,000 engineers on the high-speed train project. And, and China today has more high-speed rail track than the whole of Europe. That, that's the sort of thing that you do. So we're trying to persuade them that you know, home robots really something to get into. So uh, the Korean government, for example, is saying by 2020, that's just 10 years ago, they'll put a home robot, you know, generally intelligent and useful, so, so, so that you're motivated to buy one and spending more money than you would on a car to, to buy this really useful, intelligent home robot. So, um, and Bill Gates is on record saying that by about 2030, uh, these home robots will be one of the largest and biggest industries in the world. Everyone's forking out more money than for a car and everyone's doing it. So this is a huge industry. Uh, uh, I shouldn't spoil my talk for the, for the 11th, the talk on the 11th, but, but I'm really worried. What happens when millions, if not billions of people see the IQ gap between human law and home robot intelligence? Like, well, as that gap closes, which will be happening in the 2030s, 2020s, even, I suppose. Uh, That'll be sort of the theme of my talk on the 11th. But that really worries me as, as that gap closes. And the debate on species dominance you know, should it be us, human beings, or should it be machines? And the potential of machines, because we, we are both physicists, and right? my background is also physics, David, David um, oh, oh. So uh, the physics, the, the phys com physics computation. The potential of these devices is just phenomenal. When you get up into these astronomical numbers, try and imagine, you can't, you can't imagine that a machine that's potentially trillions and trillions and trillions of times uh, superior mental capacities compared to us. That, that's what's coming, that's what the physics says is possible. So it's only a question of time before humanity really has to confront this issue of species dominance. Do we build these things or not? And, and I'm saying, this issue will dominate our global politics this century. It will be the number one issue, colouring the whole age, like, like the way the question of who should own capital dominate the 19th and 20th century. I mean, I, I'm living in a country that's still officially is Marxist. And it wasn't too many years ago, half of the world's population were living under Marxist regimes. Really, really powerful question. But, but I see this chicken feed in comparison is question of species dominance. I mean, do we really, I mean, really want to let ourselves become number two? Or do we become godlike ourselves? So, but I'm sort of constrained. I don't know what I'm talking about.
was just following up on that. Do you, you think that given the sort of fragmented nature of the planet now in terms of politics, economic zones, do you think it's stoppable? Uh, is that unconscious? <laughs> my second book is about the rise of a world state. Um, see, I've lived in seven countries, and just, just my own personal experience, I, I see to what extent people suffer by adhering to stupid customs. But, but if, you, if, you live, if you're a mono, that means a monocultured person, if you live all your life in one culture, you're not even aware that these customs that are damaging you are just random customs, but they could be different and done better elsewhere. So half of the book is trying to teach you know, the readers other cultures do things differently and that's better. But with the technology, for example, uh, if you heard of the BRAD, B-R-A-D phenomenon, probably gets under different names to different places, but B-R-A-D stands for Big Break Annual Doubling. In other words, the internet speed is doubled every year, annual doubling. And from physics, there's really no limit. I mean, you can convey information on tiny, tiny particles. So you know, there's plenty of potential for Brad to remain valid for, for decades. So 40 years from now, if you do the math, two to 40, that's a, what, trillion? So, so imagine, try and imagine an internet that's a trillion times faster than today's, and ask yourself, well, what could you do with that? Well, one obvious answer is you could give everybody everything. Uh, vivid three-dimensional images. So you could travel the world. You have these little snoop of spy planes about this big, killing our privacy for everyone. No more secrets. Right? So any, you, you can have your own news service. You fly all things everywhere. Just get, get all the information you want. So that, that of course, would lead to a, a cultural homogenization and a world of language and a world of culture and hopefully a world of government. And then no more wars, no more arms trade, no more poverty, all, all very positive until all these damn machines come. I, I just, so to answer your question, I, I just see it as inevitable. Um, yeah, these, these things are going to happen. I, I guess the bigger question then is has this kind of thing already happened? Like there's some, probably all of you here are interested in SETI, S E T I. So some people argue that the reason why you know, Fermi's famous question, well, if they're so commonplace, where are they? You know, where's the evidence that these highly intelligent creatures that are many billions of years older than we are, uh, what evidence is there that they exist? And one theory, one argument goes, is that, firstly, life is commonplace, right? especially everywhere. Trilly, trilly stars out there, just, just in our, our bubble universe. So, so imagine if some civilization develops, evolves, and then the time frame between playing around with radio telescopes and building godlike, massively intelligent machines is probably just a few centuries. Right? So you have this time window that's very, very small in a universe that's billions of years old. So, so the argument runs, you know, once these, uh, these creatures, if you like, become super intelligent, why would they be interested in doing something so human as sending out radio signals? They, they do other things, they just switch off. And that's why they're, you know, this hyper-civilization is incredibly difficult to find. 
That was James Newton Thomas, Gregory Benford, and Hugo de Garis looking at accelerating technologies of genetics and networking in the near future with a grim answer to why we haven't seen any signs of extraterrestrial intelligence anywhere. They spoke at the Singularity Summit in Australia. It is the distant future, the year 2000. We are robots. The world is very different ever since the robotic uprising of the mid-90s. There is no more unhappiness. Affirmative. We no longer say yes. Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affirmative. Unless it's a more colloquial situation with a few robo-friends. There is only one kind of dance. The robot. And the robo-boogie. Oh, yes. Two kinds of dances. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. We use poisonous gases. And we poison their asses. The humans are dead. That's right, they are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one, it was dead. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice on the radio, then send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that email is diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. We also have a Facebook page. Check us out. Contributing to the program were Lachlan Watmore and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.